This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thanks so much for having me here. It's great to be um, uh, at another Jesuit institution. See how you. I'm sorry, Augustinian, another Catholic institution. Sorry to. to, sort of um, see how you guys are doing things here. I got a chance to visit the clinics today, and um, as I direct a law school clinic, I think it's very fascinating to see how people do it um, in different law schools all around the country. And um, so, as Barbara mentioned, I run the uh, Boston College Immigration Clinic where we represent um, non-citizens, which is sort of, right now I would consider the most politically correct term to refer to immigrants. It's, it's a term that um, I find many people are using because the term alien sounds exactly what it is, which is alien and otherness, and it's not, it's the most technically correct term to refer to these people. It's what we use in the Immigration and Nationality Act, but it's not the term I love using. So I'll probably use the term non-citizen or migrant when I talk about the people who we're serving. Um, so uh, we represent clients who are seeking asylum, clients who are victims of domestic violence, clients who um, are juveniles who fled abuse, abandonment, and neglect, clients who are in detention, who may have be lawful permanent residents, but who are now facing removal due to largely due to criminal convictions. Um, and many of our clients are in detention. So it's actually very interesting that this is a follow-up to a, um, a presentation about um, families of those who are incarcerated because a lot of what I'm going to be speaking about today is um, how detention impacts families, because it's one of what I see is the the sort of shameful parts of our U.S. immigration policy is the way that we use detention as an enforcement tool. Okay, so I started with this question, um, this very, very big question, which is, is U.S. immigration system, is our U.S. immigration system friendly to families or not? And... um, I guess like any good uh, law answer, I came up with the sometimes yes and sometimes no. So I'm going to go through and just highlight some of the places that I see with our immigration system as a whole, um, with some of the enforcement, and then I want to talk more about immigration policies in the Obama administration in particular. Um, So just as a very, very broad overview, um, you know, how how do people actually immigrate to the United States? How do they get permanent resident green cards, um, either if they're here and they're trying to get a green card, if they're trying to come to the United States. They do it through three major paths, um, some sort of an employment visa sponsored by a company who you know, proves that no U.S. worker would take that job. That's one way to get a green card. Another way is through a close family member who's a citizen or a lawful permanent resident, files a family petition, then you can get a green card that way. Or the visa lottery, this is literally a lottery for countries that are underrepresented. Um, in, so say for example, like Mexico cannot participate in the visa lottery, where they're very well represented. Um, but for countries that are unrepresented, they can literally apply to be in the lottery and possibly get a green card that way. So these are, you know, roughly since about 1965, these are the three major ways to immigrate to the United States. Um, with some various exceptions carved out. Um, Asylum seekers who can then <clears throat> get asylum, get their status as um, asylees recognized in the U.S., have a path to a green card, as do refugees who were declared refugees outside the U.S. There's special laws such as special immigrant, immigrant juvenile status that for kids who are abused, abandoned, or neglected. So there's all these sort of special exception laws for just 
certain groups of people. But overall, we've got these three different categories. And the way it works is that um, you've got you know, immediate relatives is what we call them in immigration law. It's the spouses, children, parents of US citizens. And they're the ones who can immigrate the most quickly, no wait. They still have to overcome the grounds of inadmissibility. There's, there's reasons that our immigration laws have set up that you can't come in, even if you have this type of relationship, if you have certain types of crimes, if you're a public charge, health-related, et cetera. But assuming that they don't have any grounds of inadmissibility, they can, you know, spouses can file this, a spouse of a US citizen can get in right away. And then there's all these preference categories. And Congress has set these up, and they've been around since roughly, this is in the mid-60s, so 1965, this is when we ended the national origin system. So we used to um, base immigration law on, okay, we like people from the Western Hemisphere and we don't like anybody else. So we'll favor immigration for the Western Hemisphere. Since 1965, we've ended this national origins quota idea of who can immigrate to the United States. And now it's more on a per country and we favor certain types of relationships over others. Um, we favor certain types of statuses over others. Citizens can bring their family members quicker and, um, and more likely than non-citizens and they can bring more family members. Um, but what I think that this, that this doesn't recognize is, and what we haven't looked at enough is, what is the rest of the world view as important family relationships? So for example, grandparents. I have a lot of clients from Latin America whose parents went to the US ahead of them. They were essentially raised by their grandparents. There is no category here for, a grand, for a, the child to later be able to petition for a, grand, a grandparent. Same thing with siblings. They're on there, but they're, I mean, right now, this category, um, if you're a US citizen applying for a citizen, uh, a brother or sister to come to the United States. I think they're processing cases that um, were filed in 2004 and from Mexico in 1998. So you're gonna be waiting a long, long time to be reunified with siblings. But again, a lot of my clients were essentially raised by older brothers and sisters. So to them, the sibling is essentially like a parent. So that relationship looks like a parent. So maybe it should be higher up on the priority preference. Um, and same thing with cousins. Uh, I have a lot of clients, particularly from Latin America, who grew up with cousins as siblings um, or were essentially raised by cousins. There's no recognition of that. So part of this is just, it's a very, um, I mean, obviously, it's US immigration law. It's a very US-based system of who we prioritize should be together sooner and who should be together at all um, in our immigration system. And so we can say it's very family friendly. Family, family reunification is important, and yet it's the US version of family and not maybe what the rest of the world considers to be family. The other issue is that we have um, in US immigration law this sort of obsession with fraud and um, the, the thought that everybody is trying to like doctor up documents to prove that they're the son of somebody or the or, or you know the spouse of somebody or that they're related. And so there's this um, really uh, the documents that, that one needs to prove to be able to immigrate to the United States can be incredibly difficult to get in war-torn countries. I know I had this issue of trying to get a client's birth certificate after the earthquake in Haiti. Turned out to be nearly impossible, but you needed it to prove this family relationship, to prove they were siblings, to prove a mother and son relationship. Um, so that's just, that's more about the way that our government implements the immigration system is this sort of obsession with fraud and, um, and to, to be able to document this and the difficulty that that entails for so many people all around the country or all around the world. 
Now, um, in terms of our deportation system, that was a little bit more about who we admit to come to the United States as immigrants. We kick out a lot of people. So um, our deportation system, um, it's important to note that there were these two laws that passed in 1996 that were probably the most restrictionist anti-immigrant laws that um, Congress has ever passed. And so they both were passed in 1996. One became effective in 1997. As you can see, only one of them had immigration in its title. The first one was about the Effective Death Penalty Act. So that, that statute, that law was actually more about um, cutting off avenues for um, uh, habeas corpus for, for people who were tr um, trying to vacate their criminal convictions. But then there were all of these immigration provisions stuck in there. And then with this Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, Congress then again put some of the harshest um, deportation enforcement laws in that one statute, more than I think I've ever seen in any one law. And so what, what were some of these? Um, so probably what I see impacting the families the most is this idea of an aggravated felony. It's an immigration deportation term of art. Um, it was introduced in 1988, and when it was originally introduced in 1988, uh, there were three categories of aggravated felonies. They were drug trafficking, firearms trafficking, and murder. Those were the types of crimes that fit that definition that would cause someone to be deported. Well then, over a course of a series of legislation culminating in that 1997 one that I described, Congress just kept expanding it and expanding it. And now we've got about 21 categories of aggravated felonies. They also um, said things like your sentence, even if, it, if a criminal court judge sentenced you to an entire, um, entirely suspended sentence, so a theft offense, a first-time misdemeanor in many, many states, if, this, if the judge gave you a one-year suspended sentence, even if the judge said you didn't have to spend any time in jail, that's now an aggravated felony. So it's this counterintuitive, it doesn't have to be aggravated, it doesn't have to be a felony, and yet, there it is, it's called an aggravated felony. And what's so important is that it leads to no second chances. So for long-term permanent residents, they could have been in the United States for years, they have this aggravated felony conviction and that is it. There's no, um, you know, normally for, prior to when this, this passed, so prior to 96, it used to be that they could ask the judge, you know, balance the good in my life against the bad, give me a second chance, I'll demonstrate to you that I've rehabilitated, that I have family here, that you shouldn't deport me. And the judge had some discretion to do something about that. And the judges don't anymore. And I've seen numerous immigration judges say, I'm so sorry, sir, but my hands are tied. There's nothing I can do. Congress said, this type of crime is an aggravated felony, you're out the door. Um, it also cut off some protections for, um, so it cut off the protection of asylum for anyone with an aggravated felony conviction and withholding of removal, which is another one of the protections under the Refugee Convention, um, if an aggravated felony has a five-year sentence on it. And um, Congress also, with the 96 laws, created mandatory detention, which said if you were deportable for certain types of criminal issues, you shall remain in detention. There shall be no bond decision. There shall be no consideration of dangerousness or flight risk in your case. Um, <clears throat> and therefore, you can't get out while you're fighting your case. 
So um, what I see as a, a, a big piece of this these 96 laws was the crime is bigger than the person. And that's the first thing that we consider about somebody. We've made group-based assessments of dangerousness. Anyone in these tw 21 categories of aggravated felony definition now must be subject to mandatory deportation, mandatory detention. Um, so just as a case example, uh, I represented a woman, um, I'll call her Ms. O, from the Dominican Republic. She entered the United States as a permanent resident in 1969. She had five kids. 14 grandkids. She was twice convicted of possession of a controlled substance during a particularly rocky point in her life, later rehabilitated, then ICE, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, came together. After 40 years as a permanent resident, at the age of 60, she was detained by ICE in a local jail in Massachusetts for two years. Um, during this time, Alzheimer's set in and she slowly, her mind slowly deteriorated. And after the help of four volunteer lawyers appealing her case in five different courts, she's now out of jail and out from under deportation. So I don't give this to you as a happy story because um, she, I mean, she won. She, um, what ended up happening, I represented her in immigration court in her deportation proceedings. I got another attorney to represent her before the federal district court to get her out of jail, asking, uh, filing a petition for habeas corpus. I got another attorney to represent her at the Federal Court of Appeals, and then I got another attorney to do the, um, to go back into state court and represent her and convince the state court judge to overturn his own decision about one of these convictions. And that was what ultimately cinched it for her, was this vacating the criminal conviction. But it was after that much time, and, um, and four, year, four lawyers later, not everyone is this lucky. About 85% of the people in detention have no representation. So there is no right, there is a right to a lawyer, but at no cost to the government. So she was very fortunate to have had my clinic just happen to need a case when she was happening to need representation. So we ended up, and a local nonprofit found her, sent her to me, and we represented her. And we did all of this for her. But that's such a small, small fraction of the people, and so many people don't even have representation at all. And, um, and there's no public defender for immigrants right now. So, um, so I'm sure that she would be back in the Dominican Republic completely, um, you know, just completely having lost her mind with no family support whatsoever, had it not been by pure chance of luck of coming, you know, as a client of our clinic. Um, so this is sort of the sad state of the detention system and the deportation system. Um, <clears throat> just to give you a sense of the cost of detention, um, I think the average figures are about, it costs about $165 a day to detain some, for ICE to detain someone. The alternatives to detention cost about 70 cents to $17. You know, so for example, an ankle bracelet, electronic monitoring, that's what they could be spending. And about 400,000 people are detained by ICE in a given year. Um, the, for the numbers, the fiscal year 14, 2014, the average number of ICE detainees was 33,227 a day in immigration detention. So that costs the federal government $2 billion a year. Um, these detainees are not held, some of them are immigration detention facilities. Um, others are local county jails, like around me in Massachusetts. It's local county jails. Immigration rents out space from the local county jail 
The jails love it because it's a cash cow for them, and they have every incentive to keep these beds going. And what DHS has done, the Department of Homeland Securities, in the, um, their appropriations bill, they have, it has, in every year since 2006, they've mandated that DHS spend money on a certain number of detention beds. Right now, and it's been at 34,000 beds for a while, and for a very, very long time, um, and this is the way, I have a quote here from the Washington Post. Um, <clears throat> so when this was started, and it just kept growing and growing each year, the Washington Post noted that Homeland Security officials are driven by this, this congressional directive known as the bed mandate. So we have to maintain this 34,000 beds. And it's a quota. And it basically, for, for what the Washington Post was record, reporting, for what everyone believed, it mandated that even if there were not 34,000 dangerous non-citizens out there, you must keep 34,000 people in detention because you've got to fill those beds. Congress is paying for them after all. Um, it is just since last year that DHS Secretary Jay Johnson, Jay Johnson has said, this does not mean we have to fill all the beds. It's just, you know, we have to maintain them. Um, but I think that that is going to take a long time to get out of the DHS mentality that we have to fill these beds. If one person gets released, we have to immediately put someone else in there. Okay, so for those people who can actually ask for release from detention, now as I mentioned, there's a lot of people who can't because their, their convictions just sort of fit them into the mandatory detention category. For those who actually can um, ask for release from detention, and my students and I have represented many, many clients in bond hearings, which actually is the equivalent of an immigration of bail that would happen in a criminal court. The burden of proof is flipped. So um, in a criminal court, liberty is the presumption, and the prosecutor bears the burden of proving that that person's a danger in order to keep them in jail. For all other types of civil detention, liberty is the presumption. It's usually the government who bears the burden. For some reason, in immigration court, it's the detainee who bears the burden of showing he's not a burden or he's not a danger, not a flight risk. And I can tell you, having represented detainees um, in bond hearings, it's impossible sometimes for even a lawyer to track down the documents you need to prove this person's not a danger to the community. Imagine being an unrepresented, non-English speaking detainee trying to prove to the government I'm not a danger to the community. I've watched the pro se bond hearings happen when the, when the person's without an attorney. And normally it goes something like this. The government presents a bunch of evidence. The detainee says, Your Honor, but I didn't do that. And it, let me explain my side. And then the judge says, You haven't met your burden. You're supposed to show us that you're not dangerous. All you came in here was some, you know, I didn't do it type of story. And the types of evidence that the judge will then rely on in these bond hearings um, this is from my own personal experience. Police reports, even if it later was um, dismissed for insufficient evidence, the criminal case, it doesn't, for the judges, they're like, well, the police report, the police officer wrote that. Even if things didn't turn out, that didn't substantiate, the judge relies on that as evidence of showing dangerousness. Um, I've seen judges use printouts from Facebook pages where my client was sort of flashing what the judge deemed to be some gang symbols. 
and that became a reason to find him to be a danger. Um, the government will often suggest there's tattoos on this person, which implies gang membership. That is enough to prove danger to the community. So it's trial by suggestion, not evidence. And that is taking away many, many a person's liberty. Um, the judges also, even if someone is coming right out of criminal court and has been granted a bail by a criminal court judge, the judges, the judges in immigration court are instructed to not consider that to be relevant. So the judges in immigration court are told it doesn't matter what a criminal court judge found about someone not being a danger and not being a flight risk. You make your own decision about this. Um, and the judges make no inquiry into a, a detainee's ability to pay. Um, so recently I've seen a lot of um, the judges giving a lot of $7,000 bonds for someone who recently crossed the border, no criminal convictions, um, but the judge says, well, you haven't shown me a lot of how strong your case is. You don't have a very strong asylum. So 7,000, and it doesn't quite matter if this person's like, you can insure my appearance with 2,000, because I have no money. <laughs> um, but so there's no, there's no inquiry into the indigency. Um, so immigration in the Obama administration, what has happened, what hasn't? Have, have the Obama administration's policies on immigration been family friendly or not? Um, so I'll tell you what has not happened, and that's comprehensive immigration reform. I think most of you are probably aware what that is. It's basically the pathway to legalization for the, you know, roughly 11 million undocumented in the United States. That has not happened. It has come close. There's, you know, points in time over the last, over the, the Obama administration where we thought it might be a reality. <clears throat> it's never been a reality. So what Obama has done is executive action. So he's sort of um, uh, written in, okay, I can't, I can't get Congress to pass a law that grants all these people green cards. So what I'll do, in 2012, he started the program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. This was for the dreamers, the kids who had come to the United States before they were 16. Um, they were not older than 30. They were enrolled in some sort of program. You've probably heard about this. And so they were allowed to be protected from deportation and get work permits, not full legal status, no path to citizenship that permanent residence would entail. Um, <clears throat> so that was one thing that Obama did by executive action. He then did that again in 2014. He expanded who could apply for that original 2012 program. <clears throat> and then he added on that parents of citizens or permanent residents could also be protected from deportation. Now the problem is the state of Texas and several other states immediately filed a lawsuit, got a favorable judge, and, um, and right now this particular, these two programs are held up in the courts. It's going up to the Supreme Court um, this term. So we don't know if this is actually gonna become a reality. We know that if the DAPA program went into effect, it would probably benefit about five million people by giving them work cards um, and sort of making them less terrified. It sort of brings them out of the shadows a little bit, <clears throat> but it's right now held up in the courts. Um, when Obama announced this program, he did it in a very visible um, <clears throat> announcement from the White House, and he talked a lot about, you know, we're a nation that values families and we want to work to keep them together. So that was his rhetoric. So I will say from this perspective, it certainly seems like the Obama administration, you know, tried very hard 
to protect families and keep them together. There's some other family-friendly Im immigration policies from his administration. Um, in 2013, his administration passed a regulation that allowed um, immediate relatives, so that's those spouses, children, parents of US citizens, who, um, because of the way that the immigration law works, if they entered the country without inspection, without a visa to get in here, they normally would have to go back to their country, wait often for 10 years, and then try to get back in. There was maybe a waiver available to them if they could show hardship, um, but it was all very uncertain. So my advice to any, you know, someone who's married to a US citizen, but they entered the country without inspection was, do not leave, that is very, very dangerous. Um, so what Obama did was he set up through regulation this waiver that allowed them to ask for that permission before they left, get the permission, then go abroad, pick up the visa, and come back in. It didn't necessarily cover everybody. It's not as, ex as expansive as many would have liked, but it certainly was some nod to keeping families together. He also, in 2013, started a parental interest directive. Um, ICE put this out because they realized <clears throat> that, in, um, that many parents were losing custody of their children because they couldn't participate in the process due to being detained or deported. So there would be a, um, a termination of parental rights case started in juvenile court someone would be appointed to represent the parent, and the parent would be nowhere to be found, because the parent would be lost in the de immigration detention system or deported to Guatemala. And so <clears throat> ICE's goal was to keep the parents as close as possible to those proceedings, to try to help them appear if possible, to even potentially bring them back after they were deported in order to participate in those proceedings. Now again, it was highly discretionary. There's no mandate that ICE do this, but it was certainly a nod toward, let's make sure that families don't lose custody of their children due to detention and deportation. <clears throat> and then finally, um, the Obama administration um, has done a series of these prosecutorial discretion memos to so this idea of who do we prioritize? There's 11 million undocumented people. We don't have the funds to deport all of them. Who do we prioritize for deportation? And who do we prioritize for detention? Um, <clears throat> and so with the latest of these prosecutorial discretion memos, we have um, the Secretary of DHS saying that DHS should not detain the primary caretaker of small kids. So that's, that was an attempt to keep the families together. <clears throat> but of course, that's qualified by the fact that except if mandatory detention requires it. So if the law says they're in one of those categories of mandatory detention, then we can detain them by all means. Um, okay, so some of the family unfriendly immigration policies in the Obama administration, <clears throat> he has earned the label of deporter in chief, over two million deportations. Um, now, many, many say he did no more deportations than his predecessor, Bush did. He just did more of them formally. <laughs> then Bush would sort of just turn pe people right back around without actually fingerprinting them. So in that sense, Obama did, has been doing no different. But he's been deporting a lot of people. <clears throat> the other thing is he has been focusing, and the rhetoric when he announced the Deferred Action for Parental Accountability, the, the DAPA program that's enjoined in the courts, when he announced that, he talked about we're focusing on, <clears throat> for, our, for our deportation, we're focusing on felons, not families. So it's very, he, he touted his 
enforcement regime as we're very, it's very important to us <clears throat> that we deport criminals. The problem is that felons are also fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, so felons have families too. Um, but with this felons versus family dichotomy, he was able to say we're very pro-family, we're just very anti-felon. Um, and I think that that <clears throat> is the wrong message to be sending because, as I said, many of these felons do have families. Okay, so then <clears throat> I do want to talk a little bit about the surge detainees. So this was um, in the summer of 2014, we saw a surge of um, women and children fleeing violence in Central America. And in response, DHS began detaining families along the southern border in these secure, unlicensed facilities. So they started in um, Artesia, New Mexico. Then they all went to um, Dilly and Carnes in Texas. <clears throat> and over the course of this detention, I think it's been about like 2,600 people detained um, because of this, this idea of, wow, there's a lot of people coming across the border fleeing all this gang violence at once. Some of them came up here to Berks, Pennsylvania as well. So <clears throat> instead of seeing this as a humanitarian crisis because they were fleeing some pretty horrific violence, some, some pretty horrific things in Central America that might qualify them as refugees, the Obama administration saw it as a political liability and, the, and a border problem, and a border security problem. So they adopted a blanket detention policy that said to deter future border crossers, we're going to detain these people. So what they decided that in, a bond determina in their bond determinations, instead of just saying, let's consider the individual circumstances, dangerousness, flight risk, and under most calculations, most of these women were going to be released on bond because they weren't danger to the community, they didn't have any criminal records, and they had asylum claims, so they had a reason to come back to court. But the Obama administration started um, announcing that, uh, that we can say deterrence is the reason why we're going to detain these women. So we're allowed to make, an, instead of an individualized bond determination, we're allowed to say we're detaining her, even though she's not dangerous and, and not posing a flight risk, to deter other people from crossing the border. Now, fortunately, <clears throat> a federal court blocked the Obama administration from doing that, um, again, in response to lawyers bringing actions about this. And finally, DHS agreed to stop considering deterrence in their detention policies. Um, DHS has also argued, so there's this 1997 settlement agreement that dealt with the detention of unaccompanied minors. And in that agreement, the, the former Immigration and Naturalization Service agreed to make all efforts to release minors in custody. So the idea was we shouldn't be locking children up and um, to only hold them if they had to in licensed facilities that were appropriate for children. So DHS started violating this with all of these new family detentions and the places where they were detaining them were not licensed. They were definitely preferring detention as a tool. Um, and they argued that that settlement agreement didn't apply because the kids aren't unaccompanied. They're with their moms. So there. We don't actually have to, to do anything about that. Um, so here again we see lawyers bring a challenge. The federal, a federal court in California this time said DHS is in direct violation of that settlement agreement. And um, the government is still fighting this case on appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. So they are digging in their heels, adamant that they don't have to try to release these kids, even though 
they're allegedly bound by this 1997 settlement agreement to do so. Um, <clears throat> this is just some of the um, quotes from the detainees themselves. Um, the conditions have been anything but stellar. When they describe how it was like in Ialera, that's an icebox. That's how they felt um, in the cold. There were no blankets. They were all there overcrowded with their kids, being told that it wasn't their country, they weren't supposed to come here in the first place. For those who actually had been released, New Year's Day of this year, DHS decided to conduct raids where they apprehended 121 parents and children. Um, DHS said they were focusing on only those who had come in after that summer of 2014 surge and had final orders of removal. Um, however, volunteer, volunteer attorneys who represented them said, you know, there were actually some major procedural violations here in, in that people were asked to sign deportations without being able to consult with lawyers. They were, their cases were put on this really, really fast docket which didn't allow them or their lawyers to prepare adequately. Um, and there was just a general lack of information about the process. So once lawyers got involved, um, <clears throat> they were able to protect 33 of these um, clients of these 121 from deportation. So um, there was a really good uh, New York Times Magazine article in February 8th of 2015. Um, I know I read it and felt like I am not doing enough. <laughs> I should be helping more. Um, so I would encourage you to read that. It's just a great summary of a lot of the issues that I've just discussed. Um, there's a ton of other things out there to read too, but I feel like that's, it's a, you know, it's a magazine article. It's not quite as dense as some of the legal documents that you could read. Um, and I would encourage you to do more because this, um, a, uh, a group of lawyers got together called the CARA Detention Project. And um, these are several organizations, um, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, the American Immigration Lawyers Association, um, I'm forgetting some of the other names of the organization, but they um, basically joined together and, um, and said, we need to start helping these detainees that are down, you know, these 2,600 detainees. There's so much that you can do individually. Um, you can, if you speak Spanish, come down and act as an interpreter. You can, if you are, have any legal skills, <laughs> you can come down, get trained, spend a week there. Um, they basically have set it up as a short-term volunteer opportunity for students. I know that law students at Boston College, there's a group who are gonna be going during their spring break. Um, they are encouraging students, and again, not just people who are interested in law, to go and to help these families. Um, you know, social workers, uh, there's so many other fields that they've encouraged people to come and help. Um, this is their website, and it shows obviously some of the kids who are locked up and the families. Um, we actually represent a client who, um, she and her daughter were locked up in one of these facilities. Um, the psychological trauma on the children has been horrific, and in this particular case, the child is 10 years old and she weighs 30 pounds. Um, so she's still de dealing with the psychological after effects of her time 
in U.S. immigration detention on the border. So um, that's my call to action for you. And um, just as sort of final bullet point recommendations, which summarize a little bit of what I've talked about, what could we do to improve the, you know, what can we do to make our, our system more family friendly? We can recognize new categories of family relationships for immigration sponsorship that maybe reflect the world's view of families a little better. We could restore some of the discretion that Congress took away in 1996 to immigration judges to consider bond, to consider long-term residents, to consider whether people actually should be deported. We could stop using detention as a tool of immigration enforcement. We could provide for more detainee-friendly bond procedures for those who we do detain. We could end the bed quota that says they've got to keep 34,000 beds and use that money elsewhere. And we could finally pass comprehensive immigration reform. And I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. I mean, it's hard because, you know, obviously, and, and what I find so interesting, too, about even, I didn't even get into the asylum decisions that are coming out of these cases, which are, um, you know, a very typical Honduran case might be, I was threatened by the gangs, the gangs pretty much run the town, they run the country, therefore, I cannot be safe anywhere, the gangs wanted me to join them. That asylum case probably isn't going to work. For, for lots of reasons that, um, and reasons that I don't even have time to go into the explanation. But, um, and it makes me realize how political so many of our asylum decisions are, which is, um, okay, political and floodgates, and this concern that 
well, if we start saying that victims of gang violence should then get protected, then all of Honduras is going to come. All of the Northern Triangle, every single person is, is suffering gang violence in some way, shape, or form. Are we going to just open up our doors to all of Central America? So there's a real sense of pushback. We've got to draw the line somewhere. And in fact, what I think is really important and interesting is that the Board of Immigration Appeals just last year finally recognized that victims of domestic violence were a social group for asylum purposes. Um, and it took them so long to craft a, a test for a social group, essentially protecting victims of domestic violence, but not protecting victims of gang violence. Because what you can see all over the, the Board of Immigration Appeals, that's our agency case law, is that victims of gang violence are not to be protected. Um, they are not refugees. In fact, the head of the United States Citizenship Immigration Services, who is the, the branch that has the asylum office, came to speak at Boston College Law School a couple weeks ago, and he said, the people from Central America don't have asylum cases. <laughs> I mean, he, he essentially, I mean, it was so, I, I was writing a note to myself saying, like, is he really saying that? that there is no such thing as a gang-based asylum case. It doesn't exist. So he's the head telling his asylum officers that. So you just, you know, so it makes you wonder whether there's any hope in those types of cases, except for, of course, through the court system, because the agency isn't the final, the, the, the final say in all of these. Um, but, you know, but then when we get to what can the U.S. do to fix that situation in Honduras, I mean, that, is a much more complicated question that I feel like I definitely not, I don't feel like I'm the best person to answer or say there's one quick fix. Um, I mean, you could say the same thing about like, there's a Syrian refugee crisis. Is that ever gonna get fixed? Well, that's an impossible situation. I, another speaker we had at BC was the Under Secretary of State and people asked her about the Syrian crisis and she's like, what a mess. I don't think there's any easy fix to it. Um, so with the, the political turmoil, there's no easy fix. So what we have is the ability to protect the people who flee from that violence. And with respect to the Central American violence, we're not doing enough to protect them using our asylum adjudication system. There's a theologian, uh, Dan Brody, from the University of Notre Dame, who has written a great deal on this from a theological perspective and with regard to refugees from Central America, and he speaks mostly of failing states and failed states, mm -hmm. which reflects Honduras as well as countries throughout Central America. It's a very vast situation. Mm -hmm. so my, in my clinic, we're representing most of our clients right now are women and children or just unaccompanied minors from Central America, North Guatemala, or South America. The students yesterday told me, I haven't read it. But they said that the human rights report from the State Department for Honduras does not mention the word gang. Really? <laughs> Interesting. So you can see how political this yeah. whole situation is, and especially with countries where it's, it's possible to get here over land, mm -hmm. it's so much harder for the United States to, to make the right policies mm -hmm. during the crisis. We usually like in the, with the Contras, right? Like we had all these people fleeing uh, Central America in the 80s, getting to the United States, and then we were denying them asylum. And it was only years later when mm -hmm. they finally kind of looked back and tried to rectify it. 
But the cost, I mean, you can't underestimate mm -hmm. the cost that this has. I, w I was sitting in class yesterday with students who had just met their client. She's a, a, young, wo a young mother from um, El Salvador with two kids who were held in one of those ice boxes that we heard about mm -hmm. in Atlanta. And the children were so traumatized that when they got out, the oldest son wouldn't go to school because it was so cold in the school that there was air conditioning, and it reminded him of the the cold Atlanta, and he just couldn't even physically attend school. And it took months of counseling for him to even get to a place where he could attend school. And you think about like that's just the surface yeah. of kind of the trauma that kids are going through, and these are children. Like you, like you can't under like you can't emphasize enough that the people who are being detained yeah. in these detention centers are mothers with children, with infants. Some We had a child born in the Burks Detention Center and lived there from the, the moment they were born. And it's, you know, it's just... And, and, and so there's the, there's the psychological, there's the humanitarian, there's, and if you, if you were really just brood about it and just the cost, I mean, you think of the cost, not only the cost of $165 a day to detain that kid, but then the cost of the therapy, the cost, I mean, there's so much more, like if you just think about it as cost to our society in brute numbers, in addition to the fact that, you know, our detention policy has inflicted this particular trauma on this child. Um, it's, it is really, it was such a shame, and I think the, the Obama administration's reaction to the surge of kids crossing the border and families crossing the border was, this is a crisis and we need out of it. And this is a border security crisis, this is not a humanitarian crisis. So that's, that's how they approached it. And that's unfortunately how we got to where, you know, all these kids are detained in these ice boxes and it's, it's, it's hard to explain when you really ra try to rationalize it. And I guess the other point mm -hmm. is, um, you know, just the, the fact that so many of the detention centers are owned and run by private companies mm -hmm. that are profiting off of them. Yes. And the, the, the companies are now lobbying Congress on their own to make the detention policies, like this bad thing, yeah. is because there are private companies that are profiting yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I was. I just heard a presentation where someone was quoting a prison official from now. I can't remember what state it was, but was like, "We need those beds. Those are employing the people in our town. This right. is the best." It is for profit. Yes. For private yeah. So. so this is the best thing that ever happened to them. It's easy money. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they get to they get to collect that from the federal government, and the federal government keeps paying it. Not that I, I mean, I don't know, Michelle, what's been your experience? I don't. My experience, there, we actually have a detention center in Berks County, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and 15 minutes from here. And there they had a teacher coming in, like, a few times a week. The problem was that most, that there was um, an assortment of languages spoken among the kids, and the teacher didn't speak all of the languages. So while in practice there might have been a teacher, mm -hmm. it wasn't the kind of, education that you would get in, the, in another place. And the other thing is, so some of the, um, the, the 
licensed facilities for detaining kids. Um, there are some of those along the border um, that under normal circumstances, this was you know, not the surge of kids coming across, what normally would happen is kids get detained by ICE, they immediately, they, you know, ICE figures out, ICE is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement of DHS, they figure out that the kids um, are juveniles, they transfer them over to the health and the Office of Refugee Resettlement within the Health and Human Services Department, and then they run shelters that are licensed to take care of kids, and the whole goal is to get them released to somebody in the United States. So those, so the normal process is they're at these ORR facilities that are, they, they refer to them as shelters. Um, and there, they, they do have classes, it's just that the kids come through so regularly that it's really like a month of class, and then we start it all over, and then we start it all over, because unlike you guys, you know, you're here at an undergrad institution for four years, Kids are not going to be there for four years, um, so it, there is school, but it's you know it's it's kind of a rotating school. Yeah, it's it's a little haphazard. Yeah. Not to take things in a completely different direction, mm -hmm. but you recommend the stop um, abusing detention as a solution. Mm -hmm. So, what would you say is the alternative? alternative? Well, now I struggle with this because um, on the one hand, you can use alternatives to detention, which is you know these ankle bracelets. Um, so that's certainly at much of less cost, you know, seven cents a day versus $165 a day. So that makes a big difference. Um, certainly it's much less restrictive. Um, I know for a lot of my clients, they would say, oh, you get a coin in your shoe. And really that's like an ankle bracelet. Um, the problem is that, and, and there are groups who have advocated for the use of um, alternatives to detention. It's just that DHS's reaction has not been well, let's take the people out of the beds in jail and put them in alternatives to detention. <coughs> Instead, they would say, let's just surveil more people. So people who we never would have even bothered detaining before, who we decided just weren't enough of a flight risk, weren't enough of a danger, now they're on ankle bracelets. So it's almost, so in, it's, I struggle because as an advocate, absolutely, I would rather my client have an ankle bracelet than be in a, you know, in a, in barbed wire, but um, advocating that on a scale does kind of encourage DHS to just keep more people under their watch. And, and unfortunately, so it's more of the government's reaction to alternatives to detention. Um, I mean, I know someone, I just had a speaker at my school last week who his, his whole thing is we should just end immigration detention, period. We shouldn't use it anymore. I mean, if you think about it, um, everyone who's in immigration detention they have already served a criminal sentence. So the criminal justice system has already their time and dangerous. Um, so this is what many would call additional punishment. Um, it's not called additional punishment, technically, for legal purposes. Um, and so it does, you don't get the protections that attach. But um, so why do we need it? To facilitate deportation? Can you get people to come other ways? Have them pay a bond so that they, you know, they'll lose $5,000. That's a lot of money to a lot of immigrants. Um, so, you know, so I think that, that the alternatives can be anywhere from an ankle bracelet to just. Yes. So we heard what the Obama administration has done. Um, who among the folks who are buying to replace the president? 
Well, you know, so this is really interesting because as I was coming across this, or as I was preparing for this, I kept coming across um, uh, Bernie Sanders introduce legislation to end the bed mandate, for example. Um, and as a as a woman, I've been really struggling with it because I've I've wanted to vote for um, Hillary Clinton, and I have to say, Gloria Steinem I think went a little far recently, but she did kind of speak to me and the. Look, we're, we're standing on the backs of some people who've done a lot for the women's movement, and there's something to be said about having a female in, in, the, in the White House. Um, I will say that, you know, not that I can blame her for her husband, but um, Clinton's, I mean, Clinton signed the worst legislation that I just described. Um, I would hope that Hillary might look at things a little differently, but to the extent that Hillary sort of is um, we're looking at more of some of these policies that I would say aren't very family friendly with respect to immigrants. Um, so, uh, so I don't, I, you know, like I said, I haven't, I haven't voted yet in Massachusetts. <laughs> our, nor our neighbors to the north just voted. Um, so I haven't quite come down on where I feel, but um, I will say that I, I have found myself coming across more things that Bernie Sanders is suggesting on immigration that um, I tend to agree with. What the other side. Um, oh yeah, I was like, there's another side? Okay, well, so not Trump, <laughs> in case that, that probably doesn't come as any surprise. Trump is pretty anti-immigrant. He's pretty clear on that one. Um, and you know, to be honest with you, I have barely looked at their immigration policies. I mean, Rubio had that, had probably the most reasonable of, of the other side's policies, just because there was some path to legalization that he was proposing. Um, I mean, Cruz and Rubio are both sons of immigrants. And Cruz, it's actually interesting because he was born outside the United States. He was actually born, he's a very good example of um, bloodline citizenship. So, you know, in the US we have birthright citizenship, blood right citizenship. Cruz was born outside the United States in Canada, but to US citizen parents, which is why. Um, but, uh, but no, I think probably on the other side, Rubio is, seems to be the most reasonable on the immigration policies. And it, Trump seems to be the most extreme. But that kind of goes without saying, because that's really been his platform is, you know, we'll build a wall and Mexico will pay for it and, um, and uh, we'll just deport everybody. So, so I'm, I'm optimistic there will not be a President Trump. <laughs> not all of my colleagues feel that way. industry, the uh, images of immigrants, uh, you know, have, have been cast in a way that is very derogatory mm -hmm. and so on, so that the media does have something by way of giving us the uh, kind of phobias we have of immigrants, mm -hmm. anyway, it's a strange way that we hardly even notice them, mm -hmm. so and there, there's also very interesting work that others have done along the ideas of, um, particularly in the 80s, where immigrants started to get tied up with the idea of crime, that, um, and that was when we were seeing you know, new groups of refugees who could be sort of racialized as non-white. Um, it wasn't the sort of upstanding Eastern European Russian Jew refugee anymore. Now it was Haitian refugees. Um, and so there's a lot of people who've written about you know the the our you know our refugee policy became much more um, 
uh, much more uh, restrictionist, and our immigration policies became very much very restrictionist, but mostly centering around this idea of crime-based restrictionism. Um, and that was very race, like laden with racism. It was just sort of post-Civil Rights Act race, racism, so not, not as blatant as the early days. I mean, we, as a, his, as a country, suffer from, I mean, some of our early immigration laws were called the Chinese Exclusion Act. And there was actually a law that was called that, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> so for, from the early days, we had a very racist immigration system, and that presumably was done away with in 1965, but some have argued with our heightened focus on crime-based deportation and detention policies, we've essentially now criminalized the non-whites. 